Welcome to Fields of Consciousness, the podcast for consciousness conversations with me, your host, Jeffrey Stegman, and... And Clayton Stegman. As consciousness explorers and founders of Focus Life Force Energy, we're here to bring a holistic approach to consciousness and to share practical examples of how you can take your life to the next level. From your thoughts to your spooky Halloween parties, let's explore together how consciousness interacts with your everyday experiences. In this episode, we have our Halloween special, as we have discussed some spooky subjects such as hauntings and curses. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, everyone. This episode is released in October close to Halloween and other traditions concerned with the dead, what's called hauntings and disembodied spirits. So Clayton, what, what's up with that? Um, what are the thought forms and consciousness fields as we've talked about in other episodes uh, related to these holidays? Yeah, it's interesting when we were planning for this, we were looking at uh, what are the influences that contribute to these uh, ceremonies or celebrations at the end of the year? Um, at the end of the year, I say that because that's relative to the history of the Celtic tradition, which is one of the kind of foundational influences on Halloween. So we, we know that thoughts are things and that as we uh, anticipate and prepare for and participate in an event, especially if it's happened for you know hundreds of years or thousands of years, it actually creates a field of consciousness. Mm. And um, so we thought we'd start with the history of Halloween, so we have some background to it, and we'll bring in that Celtic influence again. So the Celtic holiday was the original Halloween, and it was for them the time that the calendar ended. And it was also the time in between years, which is quite interesting. So their harvest time was ending. It was a celebration that, you know, they're going to thrive throughout the winter and not go hungry, hopefully. And um, for some reason, they believe that the veil between the two worlds was the thinnest this time of year. Mm. And they had a, uh, perhaps it was, you know, the ending of the calendar and then, you know, kind of a rebirth of the year. I hadn't found that in the history that I've read. But one of the things they did do was they kept uh, fires going that night to keep the spirits away from the living mm -hmm. because they believed the, uh, the veil was the thinnest. So what happened, of course, was the, uh, the church appropriated that uh, holiday. And as they've done with uh, not only the Celtic traditions, but the pagan traditions, and they turned it into all hallowed saints eve that's where halloween origin you know originally got its name and um it went through a period of history where it sort of devolved into tricks that's where the trick-or-treat thing came from and people were doing property damage and if you didn't give a you know a treat that somebody liked they'd they started off with stealing the gate to your house and then they would maybe do more things 
And um, so there is, there's some history there around uh, the thought forms of tricks, you know, scaring yourself and others uh, because of the, you know, it kind of devolved into more tricks than trick or treating. And there's a consciousness field around, you know, the, the, the trick or treat, the, you know, the doing some, you know, mayhem, um, you know, the veil is the thinnest between the worlds, keeping, you know, the spirits away with, with light. And, you know, these things just evolve over time. So that's, that's, I wouldn't say that's a, a world-class history lesson, but that, that gives us a place to start. Well, I certainly uh, have experienced the consciousness field around Halloween related to, to treats, you know, like, I mean, that is the one time of year I like to eat candy, you know, like I just feel like I should eat candy. <laughs> yeah, it feels like a, that, a moral obligation to eat as much candy as you can. I mean, it, it, I guess that's a combination of consciousness field and just childhood experience too, you know. Um, yeah, did you, and, use, did you used to go around with a pillowcase when you were uh, trick-or-treating or what did you use? Yeah, the bigger the, bigger, the better. Yeah, you know? pillowcase. You can put it on your shoulder <laughs> like, a, like, a, like that hobo look, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that that's definitely part of the the feed consciousness field around this is the the treats part of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's been commercialized, you know, where mm-hmm. it's more about how much. Well, for a kid anyway, it's how much it's how much candy can you get. That was there was a, a time when that was the, that was the thing, right? We um, noticed this year in August the stores were already showing Halloween candy yeah. for sale. <laughs> yeah, they usually about 90 days out, they start advertising the next cycle of consumerism. So what about Day of the Dead, Clayton? It's kind of in the same time frame. Yeah, it's uh, when we were doing the, you know, the brief history that felt relative to our conversation, we were curious if the Day of the Dead um, had some of the same influences, and it really isn't. I mean, there's a, re- it's re- there's a real clear distinction between the history of Halloween and the history of, you know, praying for the, the, the deceased ancestors and loved ones. There's like a mm-hmm. thought form of appreciation, a field of love mm-hmm. and acknowledgement of support mm-hmm. from the ancestors. And it's a relatively high consciousness, uh, you know, kind of perspective. And it's celebrated with joy. You know, the, the little that I've seen of it when I've been to Mexico, mm-hmm. it's just a very different experience where Halloween is kind of edgy, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, well, you might want to, you know, if you're going to pull out your uh, inner uh, trickster, Halloween is one of the days you can likely get away with it. Whereas <laughs> the Day of the Dead is, has a quite a, I mean, that's fun too, you know, playing playing around with stuff, obviously. But the Day of the Dead is kind of a celebration and has a lot of reverence to it. It's quite different. So I assume the Day of the Dead the holiday then is a higher consciousness holiday or higher consciousness time in halloween yes if you yeah if yeah absolutely it's a good point if you measure the level of consciousness of the culture on the on hallows uh, halloween evening uh, so a a culture that has a a really really big tradition of halloween if you measure the level of consciousness of the country on that night halloween typically will drop the level Mm. of consciousness um, Mm. or that influence will drop it and the Day of the Dead raises it. Oh. Now we haven't done a lot of research on how many points, and you know that all that might be interesting, especially for you know numbers geek. But <laughs> um, 
just to say that it one drops it and the other one raises it. So that's, you know, mm -hmm. that's interesting. Well, during, during the time of Halloween, you know, there's a lot of talk about ghosts and ghost yeah. stories and spirits. So, you know, what are spirits and, you know, disembodied beings? Um, we can talk about what we believe they are. And it's really a multi-dimensional or an interdimensional conversation. Um, and we're not experts in this. You know, we don't know, you know, don't understand all of the dimensions, but we can talk from what we believe and what we know. Um, and so from, from, from my point of view, there's other dimensions that are normally sort of not apparent to us, you know, with our normal senses of ears and sight uh -huh. and hearing. Um, but we've talked in other episodes and in this one about thought forms and fields of consciousness and you know there seems to be you know maybe a multi-dimensional aspect to that and that beings in these other dimensions could um, exist and we've seen we'll talk about some examples of how that can affect us in this in this normal kind of what we think of as the normal dimension um, and we are very sensitive to, you know, through feelings, emotions, intuitive senses. Uh, and some, some think it may be through, partly through the pineal gland as like a third eye or third mm -hmm. sight. Any, any thoughts on the, on the pineal gland? We can always come back to that in another uh, episode. Yeah, the pineal gland's a big conversation. Um... It's definitely associated with um, going between the veils, mm -hmm. if you want to refer to it as that, or um, transcending the veils consciously mm -hmm. would be another way to say it. Some people use the word piercing the veils, but I don't necessarily like the piercing idea. Mm -hmm. There is, you know, there's, there are people that have the gift of second sight, as you call it, or other forms of uh, intuition. Mm -hmm. And uh, the pineal gland has a role with that. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, there's a lot of conversation, and you know, and that's in the personal development, spiritual community, different religious communities about uh, the role of the pineal gland. You know, the calcification of it, the decalcification of it, how to mm -hmm. strengthen it. There's definitely a lot of training out there on, on that, and we've done a fair bit of research on it ourselves, Jeff, in terms of measuring, mm -hmm. of course, the the operational efficiency of the pineal gland, the structure of the mm -hmm. pineal gland because of its mm -hmm. role in consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's definitely, uh, it's part of the influence. So I'd, I'd like to talk about the ghost idea, you know, so there's, you know, disembodied beings, but there's also this, this idea, which I've heard of recently about, thought forms in a history on the on the land or in a building or an object that is almost like a movie being replayed over and over again mm -hmm. um where which might be a little bit different than a disembodied being or someone that's passed over and is in another dimension but the idea of of um the land holding the memory of an event 
you know, so we've, we talked in other podcasts about sort of the emotions and the thought forms. Um, have you heard about that, Clayton, this idea that sort of a replay of event, like, you know, the lady coming down the stairs, you know, these mm-hmm. kind of ghostly apparitions sometimes people see. Yeah, one of the classic, um, or many of the classic ghost stories that I'm recalling and many that, you know, we've researched for this, there seems to be a pattern of the disembodied entity um, having a habit of being in the same place. Mm. And um, we have a place right here in town, uh, a hotel, where there's the daughter of one of the original owners of the hotel has changed hands a few times. And she's typically seen in the same place. And so it seems that uh, when people are in between the worlds, there's often, so there's, but not always, a, uh, a repetitive pattern that they have. And we have those when we're alive. You know, we, if you're in the hotel, for example, like this person, you may go to a certain table in the restaurant that you liked, or you would go to a certain room in the hotel. Maybe you lived there for part of the time. So there's the, um, there's the, the pattern of behavior that existed while the person's alive. And then I think later on, we're going to talk about being stuck in between the worlds and repeating an unconscious pattern where you're mm-hmm. looking for something and not finding an answer and you just keep looking, but you're not necessarily mm-hmm. aware that you're looking. Now, again, mm-hmm. we don't know exactly what these disembodied entities are, are thinking, but the pattern seems to be in many cases, uh, at least the ones that we've researched, that there's a repetitive cyclical physical location that they go through. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's hard to speculate whether that's conscious or unconscious, Mm-hmm. But it certainly seems that some of it is unconscious. Yeah, where they're kind of stuck in a loop. So we've got, you know, memories, thoughts, patterns kind of on the land or building or mm-hmm. um, on an object. And there's that crystalline structure we've talked about in other episodes that can hold the memory of what may have happened. Um, and then we have disembodied beings, so perhaps human doesn't have to be human um, who passed over and somehow got attached or stuck, you know, on a, on a piece of land or a building or, or an object. So they're, you know, in another dimension, perhaps uh, not clearly visible. Um, So how would, how would someone get stuck like that? Well, one of the ways, and I think we have enough evidence around this one to state it as a maybe a little more than an opinion, is one of the ways that people get stuck in between the, the worlds or in between dimensions or between the living and the, and the light, we'll say, is uh, you know, and that's based upon the presupposition that going to the light, that's the historical context around passing over completely, is a more healthier form of existence for the evolution of the soul. There is an mm-hmm. assumption there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I th- you know, and I think in our, our probably our personal lives and uh, according to our research, I would say that assumption is correct. Mm-hmm. It seems to restrict the soul's development when it doesn't transition from one world to another. 
Mm-hmm. At least for the, you know, for most of the time, it may not be all the time. It's, it's you know, our specialty is really creating high consciousness fields mm-hmm. for all of us to live in, you know, to optimize the conditions for the evolution of consciousness in an economized society. That's our, our mission and our specialty. And, you know, when you're in that specialty, you have these other areas that you're, you kind of bump up against because you're trying to create these optimal conditions. And if you come across disembodied spirits, then, you know, you have to find a way to manage that to create the, the conditions um, mm-hmm. that we mm-hmm. want to live in. Mm-hmm. So, so, so you mentioned uh, patterns, you know, that habits perhaps that, that someone had when they were alive and you just, just now mentioned like an unhealthy attachment or, you know, it could perhaps be with trauma. Do you want to talk more about that? Yeah. So the example that comes to mind is, uh, and I, you know, this was, I was exposed to this in a philosophical organization I was involved in. They talked about being uh, very aware if you were going to purchase antiques. Mm. And so when I lived in Vancouver, uh, there's a, a street called Gran- Granville Street. And that's where a lot of the antique shops were. And uh, I was in this store looking at a, you know, just sort of window shopping more or less. And there was this lovely green wingback chair. It was quite sovereign looking, you know, it was, it was beautiful, you know, tongue and groove, uh, wood joining and the fabric was beautiful. And it was hundreds of years old and it was in pristine condition. The fabric was, you know, had a bit of wear in it, but it has had a nice patina. It just looked very well cared for, very well made. And um, when I sat in it, I, it felt really uncomfortable. Mm. And apparently this chair had been on the floor for quite a while in this shop. And so that would be an example where later on, because you can always back test with kinesiology, we determined that there was a um, somebody who was attached to that chair. Mm. So... Um, they might have now we don't know the whole story of it but um, somebody may have saved for that chair for five years you know they maybe didn't have a lot of money and they seen that chair and it meant something to them Mm. and um, when they passed well so for example what could it mean to them so it could be the place that they were in the house and that people deferred to them when they were in the chair because it was in the center of the home and and they were in a position of authority, perhaps, and they gained respect and esteem from that. And it was a pretty pretty important part of their life to sit in that chair. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't know that story in particular, but we can imagine something similar to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's maybe where they went in the evening and and relaxed, and, and it, it, you know they looked forward to that all day. It could have been where they passed. They could have passed over, or you know, there could have who knows what could have happened on the chair, but there was an energy in the chair that when you sat in it, you were not welcome. (laughs) Like you were not welcome in that chair and that chair. I don't know if it, I don't know if it sold. I didn't sit in it again. So whatever the story is behind it, that's an example of some kind of on inappropriate or unhealthy attachment. I mean, you've passed over. Mm -hmm. It's just Mm -hmm. a thing, but Mm -hmm. that thing meant so much to you that you, well, my opinion is that whoever owned that chair or maybe somebody wanted to be that person and they seen that person in the chair. And then when they passed over, you know, that they got attached to that chair because they wanted to be that person. 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's an interesting, you know, to speculate about why it was the way it was. But many, you know, there was a couple of us who sat in the chair and I was like, I'm not sitting in that thing again. That's creepy. (laughs) Yeah, it would be really interesting to see what that looks like. You know, you've got somebody sitting in the chair and then you sit on top of them, right? In another dimension. (laughs) If you had some kind of screen that could show all that, that'd be be cool. Someday science will see this. Uh, So this repeated commitment, you know, repeated like, use of the chair, you know, attaching significance to the chair. So it builds this, it builds an energy field as mm-hmm. we've talked about in other episodes where, you know, that's going to becomes like a reservoir and we'll talk more about that later, but it becomes an energy field around that chair. And then in that passing over process, you know, the person with their free will was attached in an unhealthy way, which interrupted the passing over process. Yeah. Yeah. There's, that's an, that's an unhealthy attachment. It's a classic, mm-hmm. you know, it's just a very real uh, mm-hmm. example that any of us could imagine. I think doing is mm-hmm. sitting in a chair that was somebody's favorite possession or a, or mm-hmm. a coveted possession. We'll say. Yeah. So this idea of the passing over process getting interrupted, that's just really interesting to me. You know, it's not something I think about very much. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't know how many people do. Um, are you aware of traditions around, and I've, I've heard of some, but are you aware of, you studied any traditions around sort of consciously passing over or that process? Yeah, there was a time when uh, some friends of mine were um, involved in a, you know, some, some people I worked with, a friend of theirs had passed over, and there's some things that happened in that in that process that they were um, very upset about. Mm. Uh, for example, the body ended up going to the to the mortuary because the estate hadn't been planned properly, mm. and so if the estate isn't planned, there's a there's a default. Mm. And um, there's a funeral home that it went to where the mortician was and. And they felt like they lost control of the body. You know, they wanted to, to mm. you know, they wanted to uh, have an open casket in the house, and because they didn't plan ahead, the person who passed, they lost control of it. So they they mm. ended up creating a service where um, they would help people prepare prepare part of their will and how they wanted the body to be handled, and et cetera, mm. et cetera. Mm. And that led, you know, because I knew them, um, uh, that led to a lot of conversations about preparing to pass. And so I was redoing my will at the time. So I took that into consideration. And I also um, read a little bit about the Tibetan book of the dead, Mm. because that was the the highest consciousness book I could find at the time on the process of passing. And I can't remember what the level of consciousness of the book was. Um, And in that tradition, they spend years training to die. Mm. And for them, it isn't about, well, it is about where the body goes because they want it left alone for a certain period of time. Mm. It was more about the process of training yourself to die mm. because they believe so much in reincarnation. I think uh, that process of passing over and making it to the next dimension or next phase of existence was a more important, uh, was more important to them than in many of our Western cultures 
some people believe there's nothing after this life. And in their tradition, I mean, it's just, uh, it's a very integral part of their whole uh, belief system. I mean, they actually will, uh, you know, go and look for and find the next Dalai Lama, for example, or the next spiritual mm-hmm. leader when, mm-hmm. um, the, you know, the, the one that's living passes. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very imbued into everything they do, and they have a huge tradition around it, and and you know rituals and ceremonies and all kinds of processes that they do. So you mentioned going to the light. So that's part of these traditions are you pass over, and people mm-hmm. that have near death experiences. I've studied that quite a bit. Yeah, that that can be a con- that's a common theme of like the tunnel and the light. Um. But you had said something about going, you know, which light to go to. Like there's there's something that you had about that that was really interesting to me when we talked about it before this uh, episode. The, the- yeah. Yeah, there's a few of us here that will rem- remember the name Art Bell. We're kind of dating ourselves. <laughs> but there was a time when Art Bell had Coast to Coast AM. He was the host. And uh, I think I suffered insomnia for probably about a you know, two or three years listening to Art Bell late at night. And he had a real fascination with passing over and uh, the spirit world. And um, at that time, I wasn't able to use kinesiology, but I sort of developed some frameworks around it. And then my mother actually um, died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. And she came back to life. She was re, re uh, I wouldn't say reborn, but uh, she was able to bring her back. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, she talks about that experience mm. as um, one of the high, you know, one of the highlights of her life. It was such an mm. extraordinary experience, you know, the peace that she felt and the, uh, the calmness. And she talks about the light being the brightest thing you could imagine, you know, um, mm. So when we were doing research with kinesiology around that, we determined it was it was important to go to the light that represents divinity or the highest truth that you can imagine. Mm. There is a um, there is a theory out there that not all forms of light are the highest truth when you're passing over. So that would be my uh, suggestion when it comes that time for any of us here to go, you know, if we believe in divinity or God or, um, mm-hmm. you know, whatever language you use for that, there's so many ways to describe it. Mm-hmm. Universal consciousness that you go to the light that represents that or the highest truth you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And that is a form of, uh, conscious protection for you in that process. Mm-hmm. So in FLFE, and that, for those of you that are new to the to the podcast, that's Focus Life Force Energy, and that's the the business. It's a service that we created to activate a high consciousness field. Um, so it creates a high consciousness environment, and of course, you can create a high consciousness environment in other ways and pilgrimage sites and and uh, places where there's you know prayer and positive you know positive energies. Um, so how do you think Clayton that a high field or a high consciousness area could support that this passing over process, um, 
you know, not being attached or stuck or, Mm -hmm. you know, going to the wrong light. Um, Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, when you're in a high consciousness field, your personal level of consciousness goes up mm -hmm. over time. That's, I think in our, we talked about that uh, just last night in a, uh, in a webinar, the average person on the FLFE service, if they're in the, the FLFE field 24 seven, for 90 days, the average person goes up 30 points on the Hawkins map of consciousness. Mm-hmm. So we're using uh, the Hawkins map of consciousness, which is determined through muscle testing or kinesiology mm-hmm. to quantify these fields and uh, measure and adjust them accordingly. So, yeah, if you're in a high consciousness field long enough, your level of conscious will go up. I mean, you have free will, of course. So like we oftentimes say, Jeff, that, uh, you know, <laughs> you can go, your level of conscious can go down in a high consciousness field. You just have to work very, very, very hard at it because you have free will, right? Right. Be as crabby as you want to be. Be as crabby as you want to be. And um, so your personal level of conscious would go up and then, and then you're in a high consciousness field. So you're you're less likely to be attached to that chair, whatever that chair is in your life. Maybe it's your car, maybe it's your house, mm-hmm. um, you know, and um, there seems to be a distinction between uh, having a commitment to your loved ones and wanting to support them from the other side, which is an act of love. If you're trying to control them from the other side, that's an act of attachment, mm. but an act of love would be to support them. And there seems to be a, uh, there seems to be a capacity for if a person has uh, that intention and perhaps a high enough level of consciousness because people with more uh, with a higher level of conscious consciousness have more um, more power really mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that positivity provides a, an energy that has more versatility and capacity in it to do more things whereas uh, anger tends to short you know short circuit everything. And mm-hmm. although there's a lot of energy and anger, it doesn't seem to be the quality of energy that allows people to positively support those in this dimension from another dimension. So that's probably worth saying mm-hmm. um, that the higher level of conscious you are, the more options you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've certainly noticed, you know, that I'm attracted to different writings than I what than I have been in the past. And uh, especially when you read Dr. David Hawkins and all his books, mm-hmm. they seem to go up in consciousness through the books. And some of the later ones, I just, I can hardly comprehend them at all, you know, I can't yeah. put two sentences together and understand it. But some of the, I get attracted to ones that I think was the level where I am. Um, so that being attracted to studying these higher truths and, um, you know, and perhaps higher higher conscious materials on passing over would also be helpful as you rise in consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, uh, I know that Dr. Hawkins talks about the astral realm. Mm. I'm trying to recall. Mm. I mean, I've read the books and I, I can't say I comprehended all of them either. I've read them all. Um, well, except for the book of slides, I only skimmed that, but I've, I've read the rest of them, some, most of them, uh, quite a few times. I don't think he really, well, actually, um, yeah, other than a few mentions of different dimensions, like the astral realm, 
mm-hmm. and then measuring. Uh, so you see, different people have different definitions of the different dimensions. That's why you know mm-hmm. you really have to become an expert in it, and then um, have your not necessarily your own, but have a set of definitions that uh, have been professionally vetted, for example, mm-hmm. on what is like, there's different traditions where they talk about the Bardo, the astral realm. Mm-hmm. There's a gentleman on uh, Gaia right now that talks about, I think it's nine dimensions, Jeff. Mm-hmm. And his teachings mm-hmm. seem to be pretty high. He's a relatively young man. Mm-hmm. He claims that uh, he remembers those teachings from a previous incarnation. Mm-hmm. Now, wherever he got them from, they actually test pretty high. Mm-hmm. And we, we knew somebody also that was, um, you know, was probably the highest person I've met in, in, in uh, teaching about dimensions. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just one of those areas where it has, there hasn't been, uh, in our tradition anyway, the, the level of research and uh, verification on, that, on, on the traditions uh, related to passing over and how that is connected to dimensions. Whereas a Tibetan Book of the Dead, that's, you know, there's, I don't know how many years or generations of history. So it's pretty mm-hmm. refined. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be an interesting, uh, interesting realm to study, interesting um, topic. Yeah, it's really, it seems very important to our lives, you know, in the passing over process. But also, you know, we've, we've got a lot of stories from FLFE, which yeah. we'll, we'll talk about that, um, you know, where things happen, where there's an effect on this physical world that we live in from another dimension and uh, beings, you know, disembodied beings being stuck there or attached in some ways that, um, you know, it's, yeah, the more we know about it, the better, the more that we can, can help <laughs> help others that are in that situation and maybe keep ourselves from getting there ourselves. Um, yeah. Well, you want to tell us one of those stories, Jeff? I mean, there's a couple. That, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Uh, they're so interesting when they're happening. They sort of unfold in real time with uh, FLFE or Focus Life Force Energy customers. So these are subscription customers. They're on the service. Uh, the high consciousness field is activated in their homes. And then sometimes we get feedback from them about, well, it feels really great most of the time, but then once in a while it, it doesn't. And then we do research, might be historical research, uh, intuitive work, and then kinesiology. Um, and then these stories emerge and they, you know, we really can test them using kinesiology. So we had one as a customer who became an employee and it was a periodic feeling in the house of, of cold and sort of yuckiness. And it was in a certain part of the house. And it was maybe once or twice a week this would happen. And the rest of the time, the house felt great. So when we did the kinesiology measurement, yeah, we noticed during that time that she mentioned the level of consciousness dropped. It dropped pretty far down. Uh, so something was going on. So once we looked into it, we did this process, you know, kinesiology and intuitive work and history, the story emerged of a young man, literally a thousand years before, who was in a battle situation and he saw his parents being taken away, you know, like kidnapped by the other 
the other group and he was killed right at that moment you know like maybe hit in the back of the head he didn't see it coming and he didn't realize he was he was dead and he's tracking his parents um so he's following these tracks he's on a path you know he's angry scared he's you know vengeful and this tracking pattern sort of went through around the neighborhood and then it went back through this house. It was like the same pattern over and over. Like we talked about, it was like the chair. It was kind of a pattern that kept repeating over and over. And every time he came through that property, it felt that way, you know, it felt, you know, low consciousness and yucky and sort of there was cold feeling too. And, uh, I mean, can you imagine thousand years in that same pattern, in that same like angry state? Why oh, it's it's kind of sad. Yeah, it was that. Uh, that was a weird one. It was right at the person. I remember because I went to the person's house, and um, it was right by the closet. There was a closet mm. that the energy kind of showed up in, and that, there was um. We concluded that there was some type of underwater, uh, so underground influence there where there was water dripping off rocks underneath underneath the ground, like very large boulders. Hmm. And we think the, uh, the dropping of the water, sometimes water running also creates a negative energy or hmm. pulls energy away from an environment. So there's, there could have been a couple of other things, uh, you know, supporting that influence mm-hmm. or contributing to it. Yeah. Perhaps amplifying that, that influence of that person walking through mm-hmm. and, uh, We'll talk a little bit later about what, how, what happened, you know, after the FLFE service went on and what we, what we did. Um, so we, we had a story about some customers in an old building. You remember that one, Clayton? Yeah, that was, uh, I remember the property. I'm sort of looking at it in my mind on, on Google earth, right? Cause if we have, uh, I guess we have a commitment in FLFE, the property is, going to be at um well now it's the the properties go on at 550 on the hawkins map but it was 560 before we just adjusted a little bit there's there's a slider you can use to move the consciousness up and down but it, it's at the level we promise or higher 98 percent of the time or you get it for free and so if we find a property that isn't at level we do research on it and we use google earth mm-hmm. and so i'm just imagining this property on google earth and uh there was there was an old building on the property, mm-hmm. and uh, it hadn't been torn down. And you know, at times the level of conscious on the property would would drop, and people that were there, they would notice it and they felt really uncomfortable, and they asked us to look into it. So we started looking into it, and again through a combination of, um, you know, we have a process we go through is kinesiology to measure the variables of what's going on in the property. And then there's oftentimes thoughts that we get uh, about it. And then we measure the source of those thoughts to verify that it's an integrous intuition. There's a bit of a, there's a process to all that. And it's pretty detailed and very well um, managed from the kinesiology point of view. Um, and the conclusion to that was that there was a family that used to live on the land. Mm-hmm. And there was three brothers and they had this pact between them and they swore that they would protect the land. 
Mm. Because I think at some point someone was trying to take the land from them and their family, and they swore that they would protect it. And when they passed over, they their pact was so strong and they've been doing it for so long, they just they just kept doing it. <laughs> and they would try to run people off the land. And it was just <laughs> like sitting down in that chair, it's like, wow, I'm not sitting in that chair again, you know. <laughs> and uh, whatever these guys were able to do on the other side, people would not want to be on that land. And, um, you know, it was yeah, it's an interesting story. Uh, that's how that's it seems to be how it happens you know you had this long-standing commitment for decades perhaps and you have multiple people involved in this case and uh, you know be careful what you careful what you commit to <laughs> <laughs> so so what was what was committed to in that uh FLFE office bathroom uh, situation. <laughs> Can you tell us about that? I didn't experience that personally, but I know you did. Uh, that was a weird one, man. Um, <laughs> it was our second office we moved into. It. it was the old Chamber of Commerce building in uh, Nelson. And it was sold to a dentist. Um, nice man. And uh, we'd moved in there and we'd renovated it and we were you know, doing business and there was this weird feeling in the bath in the men's bathroom and uh, couldn't figure out what was going on. So, you know, we should, you know, let's say eat your own medicine or take your own medicine. So we started doing research on it and we, you know, we developed this process because we've checked thousands and thousands of properties. Right. So we go through this process and we check that part of the property and sure enough, there's something in the bathroom where it's a, it's a low consciousness energy. And in fact, Sometimes low consciousness fields, they smell funny, you know. In the bathrooms, you can imagine it's smelling funny because obviously you go to the bathroom there. But there was, some, there was something else going on. So what we determined was that there was a, a woman who was in the business community back in the early days of the chamber and that she felt she was mistreated mm-hmm. by, um, I think, by the men in the in the in the cha- in the community in the chamber of commerce and so when she passed over she was so infuriated with how she was treated she ended up staying in the ma- in the men's bathroom of the chamber of commerce <laughs> and uh, whenever a guy went in there and was about to do his business as soon as your belt buckle came undone you get this really weird feeling and you feel very self conscious and awkward <laughs> and <laughs> <what's>, what's, <laughs> And even there was, there was this one woman in our office who was uh, quite sensitive and she felt something really weird in the women's bathroom because they're right next to each other. They shared a wall mm. and, uh, you know, she didn't want to go to the bathroom there. So that was, you know, that was kind of a weird one. Um, I won't tell you the exact thoughts that you typically had, but it was, uh, it was really, really uncomfortable. Oh, come on, Clayton. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, we'll save that one for uh, another day. <laughs> for a private conversation. All right. Yeah, for a private conversation. That's, yeah, uh, you meet us somewhere in person. We'll, we'll talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so the high consciousness field of FLFE and the other benefits of that environment. So it's, it's affecting these beings. And we can, you know, talk a little bit about you know, they're affecting us through their level of consciousness, maybe their intentions, you know, like this, the thoughts that they're mm-hmm. thinking um, of, are affecting us. 
And, uh, you know, for example, that young man tracking his parents, mm-hmm. you know, that angry, vengeful, wor- worried feeling was really affecting the, the level of consciousness, the field of consciousness there in all probably the whole route, of course, that he was on. So it may have gone yeah. through other houses, you know, down the street, who knows, you know, what other people were experiencing. Um, so how does this energy help, you know, having a high consciousness field there, how does it, how does it help them to, you know, become, you know, either not attached or to move on to the light? Yeah. I mean, we get a lot of customers asking us these type of questions. And so um, one of the themes that comes up is that if, if you have a high consciousness field on a property, does it automatically force people to pass over that are stuck? It's like, no, it doesn't. Mm. And uh, there's lots of people, I don't say lots, but there are people who will do ceremonies and place objects on a land where they feel there's a disembodied spirit, if we want to use that language. Mm -hmm. So if we didn't know how to manage that environment in the bathroom, for example, at at the office, we could have called somebody in and they would have done a ceremony and they would have maybe put, placed an object there. And that is creating a high consciousness field. And there's no, uh, you know, there's no request in our field to uh, force anybody to do anything. We're trying to help raise the level of consciousness and create more freedom. So that's probably just worth saying in the beginning is that if you're, working with anybody that's trying to help deal with uh, a disembodied spirit that you would like to to have not be there or like to have their influence be different. I mean, it was amazing to me in the bathroom that there was a certain theme of thought and it was like the same theme all the time, but changed a bit. And, uh, you know, and for that, uh, I think it was Jennifer who had that uh, young native man on the, on the land, which, you know, there was a a theme of thought. Sometimes the thoughts were different, but there was a real theme to it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're working with somebody to change that theme, you really want them to, um, I'll say my opinion, you don't want them to try to force anybody to do anything. Mm-hmm. You want to offer that, that being uh, more energy to be conscious about what it's doing. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to energize this negativity, but and a high conscious field won't do that, right? Because a high conscious field, negativity is diminished. Mm-hmm. So I think that's worth saying. So it's more like a blessing than, say, a banishing. Yeah, exactly. So in the in the blessing and the blessing of whatever is the ceremony or in the FLFE mm-hmm. energy that's there, the disembodied becomes maybe less distracted, less focused on that obsession, and you know, maybe can start to look around and realize that they're not alive. Yeah. And to support them to find the highest consciousness truth that they can find to make that transition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really not for us to say what other people do, Mm -hmm. but it isn't for us to try to entrap people and force them. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I think you've said that well, Jeff. It's not not banishment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, and then as they increase in consciousness, you know, they're 
options are increased, their freedom mm -hmm. is increased. Um, you know, they can look around, they can look for other paths. But I can just imagine, boy, you've been in a pattern for a thousand years and all of a sudden you realize it's a pattern and it's not, you know, that it's not really what's happening. Um, it could be very uncomfortable, I would think. But in that process of more freedom, more options, higher energy, because I think some of these situations, it feels like that the energy is so low, you know, mm -hmm. maybe they're like in suicides, you often hear about yes. there's just a very low uh, despair energy. And it's pretty mm -hmm. hard to do anything in that energy. I think, you know, we know that in physical form, and I'll, I'll bet it's true in another dimension that it's really hard, would be hard to take action to go to the light, you know, if that were the what you wanted to do. So having a high consciousness field then helps there to be more energy available for that person to evolve and grow and have more options, like we said. Yeah, I mean, we know if you've been around the, you know, if you've been around long enough or you've lived long enough, you know, we've all seen our own challenges as a living being who's on a conscious path mm. that we have a hard enough time changing the way we are sometimes. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you're young and you've been brought up in an environment of fear and anger and vengefulness and you get into a situation where uh, or maybe you just there may be other ways that would contribute to you being stuck. But it's not that I don't think it's that big of a leap to imagine how that could happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. We run into all sorts of people and we're personally stuck in some areas of our lives. And that's one of the things about being in a high consciousness field or environment is, you know, starting to have more options and be less stuck and have the energy to choose, choose a different thought or a different set of actions, you know, when something occurs. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, kind of a sad topic to go into, mm -hmm. but it's uh so they have a lot of compassion for for people, you know, entities that are stuck in those places for those periods of time. I mean, that must be mm -hmm. must be horrible. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's bless them, bless them all. Yeah. So, what on the positive side? Um, what about relics? You know, I hear you hear about relics every once in a while. Like I think you had mentioned the Buddha relics to me one time. Yeah, there's. Uh, a lot of traditions have the relics that they they call them. Sometimes it's clothing. Sometimes it's um, jewelry. Uh, sometimes it's the uh, the bones. And uh, some in some traditions they burn the body, and they assess the level of consciousness of the person who passes uh, by the number of. Cause they take the ashes and they sift through them, and there's. When a high consciousness person, apparently there's these little marble-like um, accumulations that are left after the body's burned, mm -hmm. and the number of and the number and size of the of these um, I don't know what to call them. I call them an accumulation. That's not a very good word for it, but that'll do. Whatever they are, these residues that are left over, the number and size of them indicate the level of consciousness of the person. Mm. So, and those hold the energy of the person, mm. those, um, 
those little um, marble-like uh, leftovers. <laughs> and um, I'd heard about the Buddhist relics when I lived in, in Vancouver, British Columbia. They were at the University of British Columbia. So I, um, when they came to town, I made a point to go to them. And uh, I went. I went probably in the first two or three days they were in town. I'm sure they were in town for a couple of weeks. And the experience they had was just extraordinary. Mm. And I was just getting into kinesiology at the time. And I measured some of the relics of the Buddha himself. So there was all these different saints. It was a big auditorium and there was all these relics in, you know, encased in like plexiglass or glass cases. And there was a rope between you and the relic. And some of them were the robes of, of saints and they seem to have a variety of different people with different qualities. Like this saint was known for this and this, or this uh, monk was known for this and this monk was known for that. And so I had a variety of different kind of energetic signatures, if you will, or imprints. <laughs> and they had something from the Buddha. Now I can't remember if it was a piece of bone, you know, and some of this is kind of morbid or if it was that, you know, leftover residual marble like ingot. Um, there's a technical name for it. Um, but what I do remember is how I felt in that auditorium and how everybody else reacted. It was, it was an extraordinary experience. Mm. Some of the Buddhist relics calibrated at nine, 10 out of a thousand on the Hawkins map of consciousness. Wow. And they're thousands of years old. So that's very high. That's mm -hmm. extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And I went back like, I, I, as much time as I could spend in that room when they were there and I started calling on my friends. And at that time I had an active coaching practice and a lot of people were local. And I said, you know, this is, this is an opportunity that's make, not, not going to happen very often. I don't know how long, you know, often these relics are going to come through. If you can make it there. And there was other people telling other people. And soon that auditorium was pretty full and it was, it was full. Like people were standing and just to be in the presence of that energy, it was, it was extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was something. So it was a field of field of consciousness around those those relics, whatever they were. And did you notice some of the other ones? Like, they must have been a different field of consciousness around. You know, a different saint that has maybe some property or some high aspect about them. Did you notice other ones as well? Was there some different characteristics? Yeah, the assumption that we had because we were trying to you know, speculate as to why they would arrange these relics in this order. And we did talk to some people who were traveling with the relics. And my recollection is that um, they were trying to find a person who had, and in our terminology, Jeff, would have a really high level of conscious in one part of life. Mm -hmm. Like this mm -hmm. person was great with eating food that was really nutritious for them. They, did, they, they just were really clean about that. And they were at peace with it. They didn't judge other people for what they did, but they were great with their diet. Always were, you know, or they worked at it. Maybe they always were. Maybe they really worked at it. Other people were really physically fit and quite a high level of consciousness. Some people were really a high level of consciousness and they were really social. That was their gift. And some were maybe very studious or some were really good at re repeating mantras or some were really good at writing. And so they seemed to try to pick people that had this specialized gift or, uh, or trained discipline. And they wanted to create like that, you know, that experience where you could 
maybe get whatever you were low in. That was, you know, kind of an assumption. We couldn't, I could never talk to anybody. Like there was, there was, uh, I don't know if they called abbots. I can't remember what they were called. There was people that were traveling with the relics that were in the Tibetan Buddhist lineage mm-hmm. or in the Buddhist lineage. I think some were Tibetan. There might've been others. If you could see them in the robes and that, but we, they didn't really speak English and they had uh, some interpreters and it was just hard to get their attention and ask them questions. So we did talk, you know, a few of us had asked questions and it was probably, you know, thinking this is 18 years ago. So my memory, you know, is not great on it, mm-hmm. but I do remember the experience. I just don't remember all the details of why it was set up. Wow. That's really extraordinary. I'd love, love to find that, that traveling, uh, event and, and go see it. It's like an, an upgrade across all those different aspects of consciousness through all those different fields of consciousness in that room. I mean, they're all kind of upgrading you. Did you feel different, um, you know, after spending time there? Oh yeah. I mean, I was going literally every day. It was just about how much of the day I was spending there. I mean, anything mm-hmm. that wasn't any commitment I didn't have that was, you know, I couldn't, couldn't get out of because they weren't going to be there that long. I was, I was canceling everything. I don't want to put you on the spot, but did did you feel like a lasting benefit after that? You know, that's interesting. I'd have to go back and measure my level of consciousness before that and after. But I would have, yeah, I mean, I would have to say, like, I couldn't tell you that, oh, when I went and seen the Buddhist relics or when I, when I visited like 30 times in the week or whatever, I've spent 30 hours in the week with it, that this part of my life changed, you know? Mm-hmm. Um but I imagine that anybody that spent time in those fields would, would change. I don't know mm-hmm. how you wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Just to, It would just be like how much you would change, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of us will never be exposed to that field in our entire lifetime. Mm-hmm. My, most of us probably. I mean, who gets to be around a 910 energy field? Mm-hmm. So most of the time, there's not even one person on the planet that's at 910. Mm-hmm. Out of a thousand, yeah. And we have some some aspects of of energy in the FLFE environment of you know from sacred sites. Yeah, we we definitely attempt to reassign energy from the sacred sites into the environment or associate mm-hmm. the energy with those. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, but anybody listening to this now or at any time in the future, if you can if you can spend time at the, at the Buddhist relics, I would I would suggest it. <clears throat> So in the in the spirit of uh, Halloween in my orange shirt, yes, let, let's talk about <laughs> curses because there's you know this disembodied stuff beings we've been talking about, but curses seem to be something different. How would how would we define curses? Well, there was I was flipping through the TV channels um, years ago, and I don't watch a lot of TV. I watch movies, but not a lot of TV. And I flipped onto this channel and they were talking about curses. And I learned more about curses in the next two minutes than I'd learned before that. And I'd studied it a little bit. I didn't realize that. So first of all, the way we, we talked about defining curses, Jeff, you went, we were planning this and we really, I mean, a decent definition of, of, of a curse is a negative thought expressed or held in mind it's either expressed verbally or held in mind and typically repeated. 
Mm-hmm. So it would be a negative mantra, I guess some people would say. And in that television uh, program, when I turned it turned it on, there was a, they were talking about curses, and this person said, the biggest form of curses in today's world is the negative thoughts we have about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And wow, you have my attention. So I, mm-hmm. I watched that. It was our, yeah. it was our religious show. Mm-hmm. So that's when I think I really, I feel like I, I understood curses differently mm. than that I had before. I thought, you know, there was a time in society when people put curses on other people. And that's still happening, of course. And we'll, we'll talk more about that. But that was a level of subtlety and everyday experience that um, that I just really didn't appreciate before I heard that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just didn't get, didn't yeah, these, get it. These stories we tell tell ourselves, cursing ourselves, yeah, yeah for I can't do this or can't do that. Um, yeah, so a curse. I'll, I'll kind of extend the definition mm-hmm. a little bit. As you said, it's it's kind of said over and over again. It's a repeated phrase used over an extended period of time. So it so it creates a reservoir of negativity. Mm-hmm. that then the curse seems to draw from and it's directed towards a person, place, or thing. So there's this reservoir of negative energy kind of attached to that person, place, or thing. Um, and yeah, this is... Yeah, go yeah. ahead, Clayton. Mm. Yeah, it seems to be that the strength of the curse relates to the... Uh, how it's repeated and how it's connected to that negative energy. Mm-hmm. Maybe you were going there. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to mention that even if it's not repeated over a long period of time, a negative thought still has an effect. Mm-hmm. It's just that curses are tend to be, they tend to be associated with a, an ongoing negative thought that's repeated and, and energized. Mm-hmm. Um, and the flip side would be a blessing. Like we were talking about a blessing for, you know, disembodied beings that are stuck or blessing for someone that you are close to, which can also be repeated and create a reservoir of positive energy. Yeah. I think that when people, for example, do a certain prayer, like I'm right now, I'm just seeing um, in my mind, somebody doing a rosary, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or doing prayers on a rosary. And there's you know, it's very possible that there are people praying with a rosary uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I mean, maybe not as much as there used to be because mm-hmm. traditions have changed. But there's a lot of time zones in the world and, and some traditions still use rosaries and people pray. They have a time of day when they pray. It's very possible there could be a 24-7 uh, energy of praying on a rosary. So there would be a blessing field associated with that. So when you start to pray, you kind of fall, you know, you not say fall, but you relax into that habit that you have on your own in the history of the, of the, of the prayer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You might actually rise rather than fall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. In consciousness with yeah, that, that a, thought field. Yes. Um, I've noticed that with chance, uh, Sanskrit, chants like in a kirtan situation and yeah seems to be a lot of energy on those chants and they've Mm -hmm. been around for thousands of years some of them and so that's i guess that's another example of 
that reservoir of positive energy building. And there might be a temple associated with that chant, yes. you know, a place where it's actually being held. And then when you chant that, you're tapping into that energy. Yeah, you're contributing to it and receiving from it. Yeah. And there's a sometimes there's a particular saint associated with a chant or mm-hmm. um non-corporeal non-corporeal being mm-hmm. or non-corporeal being i think that's the way to say it mm-hmm. yeah it's a very interesting phenomena so it's you know it's perhaps multi-dimensional or qu- like a quantum association you know particularly if there is a temple associated with a particular chant then there's mm-hmm. that instant connection when you chant you're really opening up a field like FLFE opens up mm-hmm. or activates a field through the quantum association with the system and the location. So yeah, I believe that chants work in a similar way to you're activating a field that's around you. And you know what the characteristics I guess would be around the thoughts and intentions and beliefs that, you know, around that, mm-hmm. around that chant. Yeah. Um, I think there's something else that's worth saying here. Um, I think the highest possibility for us interacting as humans is to hold other people and ourselves in the possibility of being reborn at any moment. Mm. And by that, I mean um, that we're consciously holding a space for others to transcend the challenges that we have and the limitations that we have, you know, Mm -hmm. those imposed on us by others, but mostly those imposed on us by ourselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know in FLFE, we have these requests to divinity in this space. Uh, We call them programs. And we do make that request to divinity that we are able to see each other renewed in every moment in such a way that we can transcend our limitations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a pretty high order for a person to hold for themselves or others. Mm-hmm. But just because we're talking about blessings, I think that's worth saying. Mm-hmm. That, that would be one of the highest, if not the highest uh, mm-hmm. possibilities. Yeah. It's holding, holding the blessing for freedom for you know, like increased mm-hmm. freedom and joy and options in their life. Mm-hmm. Transcendence. I love the way we, you know, we may get onto a dark subject, but we, we tend to take it to the, to the, to the positive side. It's just how we, how we see life. Um, yeah. And these curses, um, you know, as we're saying, there's a reservoir of positive energy and a blessing and some of these technologies you could say like chance. Um, and it seems that the general positivity and holding these blessings for each other for ourselves and being in a high field can dissipate the negative energy of a curse yes Um, a high consciousness field whether it's uh, created internally from from us as individuals or we draw upon a reservoir of energy that's created by other individuals and ourselves perhaps such as a pilgrimage site and there are emerging technologies like uh, FLFE or focused life force energy that can create high consciousness fields. Mm-hmm. 
these high fields dissipate negativity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then there's specific, uh, you know, it's not an area of expertise for us, how to, how to, how to, uh, remove a curse or dispel negativity necessarily. Um, but yeah, these, these mantras, these, uh, these chants, these prayers. Yeah. They would definitely dissipate negativity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would assume that if you were really into this, uh, sort of field of study that you would be able to correlate a negative experience in the outside of your life with a positive affirmation, prayer, mantra, kirtan, song in your inner world to dispel that. There's probably a, a correlation that's able to be measured. Mm-hmm. It's just not something we have any nearly much expertise in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're coming to the part of our discussion where we talk about, you know, what some takeaways perhaps. Mm-hmm. Certainly the, the cursing yourself one really struck me as you said that, uh, you know, where we're kind of looking at ourselves and our thought patterns and in other podcasts we've talked about sort of those, you know, unconscious thoughts that we might have and some which may be ours and some which may not be ours you know, that are part from the environment or from societal thought forms. But, you know, so the, I guess the takeaway is examining what our stories are and what we're, what we're repeating to ourselves. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Jeff. It's, um, we believe we can certainly measure to some degree where thoughts come from through kinesiology. And, um, for me, I'm going to, uh, be a little more cognizant of what I'm, of what possibility I'm holding for other people. Mm-hmm. I mean, we work with some pretty great people in the office, and uh, when we get on to a really interesting topic and see everybody light up, you really see the the beauty, you know, or if they're passionate mm-hmm. about something and they're just really shiny. Um, mm-hmm. It's easy to see them as powerful, free, sovereign beings and a spark of the divine in those moments mm-hmm. and when, you know, it's just when there's things that you want other people to be doing for you as an employer and they're not able to do it, you know, that's when it, you know, it's harder to hold that possibility. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I think, I think, uh, that could probably, there's probably there's something there for all of us, just with our family and friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, we tend to take uh, for granted the people that are closest to us because we spend more time, so much time around them. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the term is uh, familiarity on the negative side, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, holding, first of all, awareness. What are the thoughts that I've got? You know, that mine, my thoughts are not, they're still creating the reality mm-hmm. around me and um, really consciously holding that, that, possibility for everyone to transcend whatever you know whatever is theirs to you know for them to work on what's it wherever their edges are mm-hmm. and just hold everyone in the you know the story of joy and that shiny as you just said like that that shiny lit up you know excitement of something they really love to be involved with and be doing 
Yeah, and I guess the, maybe the last thought on this for me anyway is um, another takeaway could be uh, exploring the passing over process mm. and being um, and being comfortable with that in yourself as to how the, you know how you want to manage that if it's not something you've you've studied yet. So that's another possible takeaway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I personally like to work on that. Yeah, that one. Mm-hmm. So I think it's time to say goodbye to your orange shirt, Jeff, for today. Is it? Is that that time? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it'll, it'll, I'm sure it'll show up at some Halloween parties coming up. So. Yeah, got to get the, <laughs> got to get, it's like those Christmas socks. We wear them at Christmas, right? They have like little elves on them or Santa Claus, <laughs> you know, reindeers. <laughs> it was great being with you, Clayton, and having this discussion at this time, time of year. It's, uh, there's a lot going on with Halloween and, and um, the Day of the Dead. And it's really, uh, it's been fun to dig into this. Yeah, it's, um, we spend so much time talking about consciousness. It's nice to um, find a topic that we haven't really, you know, researched very much and connect like with Halloween, the day of the dead and look at the history and the traditions. It's been, that's been fun. Yeah. Thank you for joining fields of consciousness, the podcast of consciousness conversations. We invite you to visit the link below the episode to experience a completely free trial of Focus Life Force Energy for 15 days. If you like, you can if you like, you can subscribe to the Fields of Consciousness podcast and please tune in again next time. We release new episodes every other week on Tuesdays at 11:11 a.m. PST onward and upward.